I'm Jake Monaco, the composer for Be Cool Scooby-Doo, and you're listening to a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Yeah! Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo, the show that attempts to unravel 50 years of mysteries, meddling kids, and masked villains. My name is Mike Josick, and I'll be your guide through all things ghostly and groovy as I investigate every angle of every mystery and beyond. So grab yourself some Scooby snacks, fire up the mystery machine, and let's start the show. I want you to meet my friends, Dr. Quest, Race Bannon, and Johnny Quest. Oh yes, and Bandit too. <laughs> Crazy! And here we are at episode 24 of the podcast. It is Dateline February 25th, 2019. And we are once again going to be taking a deep dive on one of the DC Hanna-Barbera books. Actually, one of the launch titles for DC Hanna-Barbera, Future Quest. And as you probably already know, our very special guest for this episode is going to be writer-artist Jeff Parker. Now, I first encountered Jeff about 15 years ago. He self-published a graphic novel that he wrote and drew called The Interman. The Interman was an action-adventure espionage mashup. A few parts Robert Ludlum's Bourne series and a few parts Johnny Quest. And since then, he's gone on to write various fan-favorite series for several publishers, including one of my favorite comic books of all time, Agents of Atlas. If you don't know Agents of Atlas, you should check it out. We're not going to talk about it here because it has nothing to do with Scooby-Doo or Johnny Quest, but we do talk about it a little bit in part two. So if you forget to go check it out after me telling you now, you'll have a reminder in part two. Definitely worth the time. Anyways, Jeff has since gone on to help revitalize the King Features characters uh, over at Dynamite Comics. He did that about five years ago. He took the characters of like the Phantom, Flash Gordon, Mandrake the Magician, did some really great fun stuff with them. Honestly, that project was probably what led to his getting the job over at DC, uh, bringing Future Quest to life. I've talked about the launch titles uh, for DC Hanna-Barbera before and how Wacky Raceland and Future Quest actually had the most appeal to me and the Flintstones and Scooby Apocalypse were ones that I actually wanted to avoid. I since, of course, have completely changed my opinions on that. Uh, I enjoyed all four launch titles, but Future Quest was kind of a singular effort in that, you know, Flintstones and Wacky Raceland and Scooby Apocalypse uh, all just kind of like reimagined a single show, whereas Future Quest was huge. Uh, within 12 issues for, for one year, Jeff told continuing story, it was... Uh, galaxy-spanning story with a cosmic threat menacing uh, several worlds and like all the action adventure characters from Hanna-Barbera came together. You had the quests, you had Mitor, you had Birdman, you had Space Ghost, you had the Herculoids, you had the Impossibles, you had Frankenstein Jr. Like I don't know how he balanced them all, I don't know how it made sense, but it was an incredibly entertaining series, and I'm so glad that he has joined me to talk about this, because there's a lot to kind of go through. And I loved what he did with the series, and for any of you guys who have read it, I hope you're kind of excited to hear this too. Uh, and if you haven't read it and you're just listening to this, if you like origin stories, if you like process stuff, then uh, this should probably be okay too. So as per usual, the interview is split into two parts. Uh, we actually, we talked for quite a while. So you're getting part one now, and I will of course roll out part two uh, as soon as I can. I have had some technical issues this month uh, with some hard drive crashes, which has been a, an incredible pain in the ass, but fought through it, so here we are. Uh, I will point out that this interview was conducted around the end of 2018. It was just before Jeff's James Bond Origins series came out, so 
Uh, I mean, there's nothing really timely about it because we are talking about a series that had ended. Also, like the the Future Quest series that came after Future Quest Presents, uh, that featured kind of all the other characters, has also come and gone. So that's kind of all I have for now. I'm gonna stop jabbering and let you guys get to the interview. So part one, Jeff Parker, writer of Future Quest and Future Quest Presents for DC Hanna-Barbera. I hope you enjoy it and I will see you all on the other side. Better get me file 037 and call the airport. You're calling in Dr. Benton Quest? Right. So I'm sitting here with Jeff Parker, who is one of the writers from the first wave of the DC Hanna-Barbera, or was it Hanna, DC Hanna-Barbera or Hanna-Barbera Beyond? What was the official title for it, Jeff? Uh, I, I, I thought it was just DC HB, or we, we always just, in the emails, say HB all the time. Okay, I've heard Hanna-Barbera Beyond, so I, I was kind of curious, but yeah, so I'm talking to Jeff Parker, and uh, he wrote the Future Quest book, which I believe was the second book to come out from... Yeah, Scooby Apocalypse was first. Yeah, it was Scooby and then us. Yeah, and uh, he did that with uh, Evan Doc Shaner and several other artists, and since then, for DC Hanna-Barbera, has worked on Future Quest Presents on a few of the one-shot stories there. Actually, no, you launched that with three issues, The Space Ghost. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Future Quest Presents, yeah. And uh, most recently, the Captain Caveman and Funky Phantom backups in the Aquaman Jabberjaw and Black, Black Lightning. Lightning. Hong Kong Fui. Hong Kong Fui. Yeah. It's a lot of names. It is a uh, lot. So great to have you here, Jeff. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me on. This is great. So this kind of, we talked a little bit before we started the kind of official record. This kind of takes me back 15 years to our first uh, Interman interview that I did with you back in I think it was 2003. One of the things we talked about then was how that book kind of had uh, a little bit of Johnny Quest in it as well. It was sort oh, of yeah. you designed it as a book to throw in everything that you kind of liked about stories and comics and Johnny Quest was a huge influence to you at that point. Yes. So I kind of feel like we're coming full circle here. <laughs> yeah, it really is. What, uh, what was your first contact with Johnny Quest? I mean, I'm guessing you probably watched it as a kid. Yeah, I watched the, uh, obviously I didn't see the very original cartoons. Yeah, when I saw it, which would have been in the 70s, they were kind of repackaged, and they had the, for anyone who saw that batch of the Johnny Quest ones, it was still the same cartoons, but they put on a different uh, narrator thing saying a supersonic jet on a super secret mission, blah, 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 and then they name out, uh, you know, Benton Quest, you know, Race Bannon, all this stuff was before it was just silent and uh, and just had title cards under their heads. But um, and I did a little allusion to that later, where Ty, who becomes my tour, is like, I can't believe I'm on a supersonic jet on a super secret mission. <laughs> like, it's like you have to put little references like that that only you will get just to amuse your inner child. But then years later, like when I was first starting in the industry and uh, drawing comics, I got asked by Dark Horse to draw, they were going to do new Johnny Quest comics, tying into that 90s cartoon that they did. The Real Adventures, yeah. Yeah, but that was a miserable experience because it ended up, they would send in my art to Hanna-Barbera at the time, and they came back with the notes, no, this looks like classic Quest. That's not what we're doing. We're doing our new edgy Johnny Quest. And I was like, ugh, edgy. It's like they they killed people in the old cartoon. You know, (laughs) All, all he does on this cartoon is go into a virtual reality chamber all the time and wear a headset. So, like, finally I ended up only doing, like, some Johnny Quest story in, that was in a breakfast cereal. And it was just the most miserable experience. And I had to just trace off their model sheets. I was I was very... Uh, and But that, ultimately, I was so down after that. That was one of the things that inspired me when I was coming up with Interman because I was trying to get something with that global adventure feel. And I was also kind of digesting a lot of spy books at the time, uh, as well as like nature stuff. And it all kind of came together in that. So it really was influential. And then it's just really, it's not ironic, I guess it's appropriate or whatever, that years later, I think Darwin Cook recommended that Shaner and I be the ones that take on, you know, the Johnny Quest, the Future Quest, bringing all the heroes together book when uh, Dan Dio asked him about it. Yeah, I was going to, I'm going to ask you about that, but I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later, (laughs) Uh, just to kind of keep with a sort of a chronology here. So 
You had your contact with Johnny Quest. You also, I think I heard you in another interview saying that you were like a Herculoids fan, so you had followed other adventure series as well? I mean, well, if it was on TV and it was a cartoon, I watched it. So, yeah, that was easy enough. But, yeah, I and I love Space Ghost. You know, that, I thought that was a great one. It Make no mistake, Johnny was always my favorite. It yeah. was the most complex of all those cartoons. The others were just very short and had the same plots all the time. But that original Johnny Quest was originally a nighttime show, and it was, you know, it was supposed to be an all-ages thing. And that's why it just had way more of a story than, than what you had from the other things, which were just for Saturday morning. Oh, yeah. I was actually, uh, while I was waiting for us to start here, I was watching some episodes of, like, Birdman and Herculoids, and there's just not much going on there. <laughs> the Herculoids is almost like some kind of weird art project, because it's... Sometimes, like, aliens will just show up, music's playing, the Herculoids see them, they start fighting. There's no story and no one said anything. You know, it's just really weird. It's also a really weird setup, like, Igu. What, what is Igu? I mean, he's... Why is he a rock ape? <laughs> yeah. That's what was fun about that, though. Then I, I, just, I did the same thing as you. I just kind of watched the cartoons. And then I started, like, imagining, why do these robot? Why do these monsters hate robots so much? And then I thought, well... You know, going with what we all think about today, you know, when uh, artificial intelligence would kind of usurp us, you know, I just figured that's what happened. And also kind of used that as a neat little thing. Like, you know, they referred to in later versions. Now I've got it backwards probably, but I think originally the planet was Amzot, and then they called it Quasar, or it may have been the other way around. Uh, so I just say, they're twin planets, and they both exist. And one of them is where all the humans were, and one's where the Herculoids live, and the humanoids, and the humans flee to that other planet once all the robots start revolting. The fun thing was, we didn't do a big, long story. It's just like, the robot revolt happens, like, within two pages. It's just all, it's like, <laughs> you see a scientist saying, this is going to be the next step in their evolution. And then the next minute, they're all just blasting all the people to death. I really liked how you incorporated that sort of later in the story when uh, Tara and Zok come out yeah. and they see Frankenstein Jr. and just instantly attack, totally undermining kind of everything that's been built up to that point action-wise. Yeah. It was uh, it was clever. It was a nice way to take just such a random thing and turn it into an interesting story point. Well, that's one of the where you start to think, what would the character do more than what you need a plot to do? And then you often find the characters will push your plot in a way more interesting place. So that was the whole thing. I was like, okay, everybody assumes the heroes will start showing up, teaming up and everything. But what if, you know, you get a great big monkey wrench in it like that? And and then you see how good the Herculoids are at what they do. They take Frankenstein Jr. down super fast. Yeah. He, he collapses. That's actually something that works really well in a lot of the stuff that you do. Um, like you mentioned earlier, you said you have to throw something in that's just kind of a reference for you. But sometimes those references, you kind of flesh them out and make them into really interesting plot points. Sometimes they're just really clever little winks at the audience. Like I remember when uh, I was reading Flash Gordon and you had Volko doing the shadow puppets with his hands. I tweeted oh, yeah. at you. Like, that was brilliant because that was right out of the right out of the serials and it's like it's super rewarding yeah thanks for knowing that and it doesn't interfere with the plot unless you're actually using it as a major you know plot device which it's just it's clever it's something I've always kind of appreciated about a lot of your stuff oh thank you yeah I that stuck with me for decades because I had seen that in a in a serial that I had gotten a videotape of and uh and I was like Voltan's just nuts I you know there he, he he's sitting there doing his little oh I said I said Volko, didn't I? Oh, yeah. That's Aquaman. <laughs> well, he's nuts, too, but in, but in Aquaman. It's almost the same name. And it's like, didn't, isn't like DC didn't take Hawkman from, you know, Flash Gordon, too, if, while, while we're picking out things that they cherry-picked from old Alex Raymond comics. But, uh, yeah, it's, that always stuck with me. It's like, why is he doing these shadow puppets? And I'm like, i got to get that in there, because, one, it'll be something different, and it's something Shaner will have fun doing in the in this in the comic and he did he did a great job of it with johnny quest i'm wondering if this is a redundant question i was going to ask like what was it about the show that sort of really hooked you what was what attracted you so much i mean i know the the show itself like we're just comparing it with with the other adventure shows it's so much more sophisticated it's so much more interesting to look at it's so much more daring was that just 
as a young you, it was like crack or... <laughs> yeah, I probably kind of, I looked sort of like Johnny Quest with my blonde head. But uh, I just, I think I probably liked the idea that, because I don't, I, I don't think I really liked stuff with kid sidekicks very much. But I did like the idea that, wow, these kids just get dragged everywhere and pulled into this sort of thing. And yeah, race and everybody will make an obligatory, you stay back here. But they don't try very hard because they know it's not going to stick anyway. And then Johnny and Haji are full on out there in the middle of all the action, getting attacked by a giant spider monster or an invisible creature that they keep throwing paint on, something like that. Uh, that's interesting. Even though Benton and Race are basically the the protagonists of the show, I guess, because they're the adults and they're the ones who sort of do the most. I never really saw it as a kid sidekick show. <laughs> I always saw it yeah. as the adventures of Johnny and Haji, and, and they it, were like the adult sidekicks. Yeah, but, yeah. You forget how much when you're a kid, you kind of tune out all the adults. And really, Doctor Quest doesn't do that much. You know, it's usually his inventions or something or what lead kick off the story. Right. But, you know, it's definitely race. Race's show half the time where he's running around flying biplanes and shooting things and stuff like that. But at the same time, if I guess if you broke it down, it's like no one gets as much time as Johnny and Haji. So the only thing that uh, is always annoying about it is Bandit. Because uh, <laughs> his bark is annoying. And he, he kind of, by being a small little French bulldog sort of thing, they always have to carry him around. So he kind of doesn't help. And Doug Wilde told me that back in the 90s. He said, I didn't want it to be bandit. I didn't want a dog in there. He said that was because we had originally started out, we were going to make Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, which was a radio drama. And Joe Barbera said, oh, no, don't forget to give him a dog. And he's like, I wanted to give him a monkey. And, and and this is exactly what he said. And I think he said it also in like this old uh, Kamiko uh, interview in one of the backups of those Johnny Quest pieces. He said, because a monkey can go get keys and get you out of prison. It's like <laughs> Alex Toth didn't miss that note because then suddenly there's a monkey in Space Ghost who's going around doing all that. And that was sort of me, like, once I did this, where all the heroes come together, you'll notice, like, Blip sort of takes precedent in the pet department, because <laughs> he's just a way more useful little animal. Yeah. Uh, he can understand what people are doing, he can write, he can go get the keys and let you out and everything, steal your power vans back, and all Bandit can do is kind of make noise and attract attention to you, which doesn't help at all. Well, Bandit was originally there basically to keep the kids from getting scared, to give them some, like, comic relief. Yeah, and if and if there was too much talking, because you always notice like if there's exposition going on, you're right. Um, almost immediately yeah. afterwards, Bandit does something stupid. So it's just when the kids start like zoning out. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good observation. That is, is, yeah, Bandit takes you out of the scene every time. There's a certain acceptance I have for for Bandit because um, I don't know if you ever saw that documentary that somebody put together online. It was like the Quest Files. Oh, I did, I did see that. Yeah, and in that documentary, he was talking about how initially they almost wanted, like, not just a dog, but like a Huckleberry Hound kind of dog. Oh, God. <laughs> Which, I don't even know how that would work. That's just insanity, but... Yeah, a lot of those... Th- yeah, things I would uh, read Toth or Wildy saying, Joe would throw stuff like that at him and... They'd try to make it work if they could, but then they'd argue a lot of it out. Doug seemed to get his way on a lot of Johnny Quest, which is why I think it's so consistent. And and why but still Bandit's weird because he's sort of still cartoony. Yeah. You know, he's got a he's got a little mask or whatever, and nothing else is. I really like the the opening scene stills whenever you go to a new scene. It's usually all drawn by Doug Wildey. And it does, so it looks a lot more solid than everything else that that follows the next few minutes. But you always get one brief setup, and it's like, God, that looks so cool! All these frogmen standing around in the shadows—it looks great. Well, even the other animals in the show have more realism to them. Yeah, yeah, they were than all bandit. <laughs> uh, so moving on, you uh, you did some work doing storyboards for commercials and animated shows, and then you move into comic books. Well, back into comics. I had started in comics. But oh, it was did, you, really... did you do the Malibu stuff prior to the storyboards? Yeah. That was, oh, that okay. Was the, that was in like the early, mid-90s. And Because okay. uh, if you remember in the sad, scary times, before these sad, scary times, the, uh, the whole comics bubble just sort of burst right in the middle of the 90s. Yeah. And then suddenly just comics was shrinking down. I just couldn't 
living back in North Carolina, I couldn't find any work. And I sent in some, some, uh, I did a storyboard test for Sony Animation and got accepted. So I said, oh, well, if, if I'm going to keep drawing and doing comics type stuff, you know, I better move. And so I moved out to California and worked on uh, the big guy and Rusty the Boy Robot. You know, it was actually a lot of a lot of comic artists were doing storyboards at that time. Yeah, there were. Oh God, when I went into the Sony Studios, it was just full of uh, people who used to do comics. And the cool thing was, back where I was sitting, I came since I came in late in the production, they put me back where all the Men in Black teams were instead of with the the big guy teams. But did you bump into Darwin? Yeah, that's where I met Darwin. <laughs> Uh, Dar- cool. Darwin was in the office, like right next, almost next to my cubicle, and I would just bug him, asking him about stuff he worked on over at Warner Brothers, you know, r- the year before. And uh, he was right. always really gracious and everything, just telling me stuff, and you know, so that's we hit it off pretty well even back then. Very cool. <laughs> and it, yeah, and he was, and I didn't realize he was starting to work on what would become the New Frontier at the time. And it's again, it's another first. Sur- weird thing where things keep meeting up and intersecting but you know when dan didio asked me about this he said you know we kind of want this to be like the new frontier and i was like well that's it you got me uh you know that's my favorite thing dc has ever done so (laughs) i will definitely that so that became our template really so might as well just jump ahead how was darwin involved with this prior to you guys did did they go to him and pitch it to him and then it ended up getting to you yeah i that's what I think. I'm never very clear on it, but it sounded like they approached him first, thinking like wanting a new frontier type thing, just asking him how he might put a thing together where you bring Johnny Quest and Space Ghost and all these characters together, my tour and all that. And uh, I believe, and I'm again, I'm speaking based on just stuff I heard or whatever, and trying to remember what everyone said to me at the time. But I believe it was because Darwin had been doing. He was doing the covers for some of the the King features stuff, like right after I did that. Um, King's Watch. Yeah, King's Watch thing with Mark Lamy, and then I was doing Flash Gordon with Evan, and then they brought in Darwin instead of like when we were doing it, because I would have loved those Darwin covers, like great, <laughs> like those were the perfect variants. But you know, he he read our Flash Gordon stuff, and I'm pretty sure he said it's like, you know, you got to get Parker and Shaner to do this, and I'll I'll work on the you know, the, the overall outline with him and everything. He was going to originally be more, way more involved. I mean, he did work on the pitch with me, and that was great. That was like going to school to learn how to do a really good pitch, you know, working with him, because he had that thing beefed up with all kinds of stuff. He let me run with quite a bit of it, and then he went back and goosed up some of the things I had written so they were more exciting, and, you know, it was really neat. Like, the first thing, he had an impression of a few scenes, and I met him in Baltimore at the Baltimore Comic-Con, like, right after they had uh, emailed me, and Dan just sent me that picture that Darwin had drawn with all the characters, and I just accepted on the spot. Actually, I accepted when I found out Darwin was going to be involved. I hadn't seen anything. I went, I don't care what it is, I'll do it, because I drive a hard bargain like that. And uh, (laughs) so, luckily, I was already going to Baltimore in in a couple of weeks to that show. So... I went up to Darwin while he had this massive line of people and he just like said, all right, I got to go and like, you know, cut off the line and went with me outside and then started telling me, you know, it's like, I just picture this thing where Johnny and Haji are, are flying around the Florida Everglades, which was interesting because he had just recently got a house down there. So he was like going to Florida quite a bit. You know, he, he lived near Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor, but you know, splitting his time between Canada and there. And he's like, and they see a light in the sky, and they go check it out and everything, and then they find tundra, a dead tundra laying there and all that, and they come upon the Phantom Cruiser. So he was just kind of, that was really interesting for me because it made me realize he thought about stories the way I did, where sometimes he'll just start with a really intriguing uh, kind of impression that almost... So he was just kind of riffing. Yeah, it's kind of riffing and kind of dreamlike. And, uh, and then, you know, and then he kind of threw that at me to let me start building a story around it and that's when i kind of came up with uh you know the whole big world eating thing that was going around and could project itself from planet to planet but used up a lot of its mass when it did so it wasn't as powerful at first omnicron you know and i came back to him like here's here's how we could get everybody there and we'll just assume space ghost and uh the galaxy trio and all these other characters are all in the same solar system so that saves a lot of like jumping all over the universe trying to pull 
everybody they're already there together fighting it you know and, and get pulled along oh and then it's like and then I, yeah and i figured out dr zen could be instrumental in sort of bringing the creature to the world by the way that again i did a, a reread of future quest a research reread before starting our conversation and i'd forgotten the zen stuff in the last couple of issues uh-huh you made me feel more sympathy and empathy for that character <laughs> you yeah. humanized zen that's the way I got, too. I, I, I started to really care about Zen. And you'll like the fact that he turns up in the final issue of uh, the Future Quest Presents series. It's a Frankenstein Jr. story that Elaine Morissette is drawing. And uh, I have Zen show up in that one, too. So so he's not out yet. He's, he's still kind of this rogue character, in my mind, floating around, maybe being a help, maybe being a menace, depending on what's going on with him. Because I went back, I was like, we all assumed like Doctor Zen would be involved because he was the one Johnny Quest villain anybody could remember. And and I was thinking like like everybody else, I was thinking, yeah, he's kind of a racist stereotype. There, you know, they were doing a Fu Manchu thing. But then when I went back and and looked at the Doug Wildey's design sheets, Zen just kind of looks like a scientist. I mean, he looks sort of cool actually. And then I realized watching the cartoon, it's like, oh, it's because of the voice. You know, it's like right. they're going all over the, ah, Dr. Quest, that sort of thing, you know, just like way over the top. But if you look at just the drawings, it's like, well, if they had just given him a normal voice, you wouldn't have that perception <laughs> of him. So I just went with that. I was like, all right, let's assume instead of doing that the way they were, of course, probably going to do it at the time, it's uh, Dale Messick and all the other guys who were doing voices, having to jump back and forth, being race and then this character and Dr. Quest. You know, it's like, oh, let's just play him a little more straight. And maybe he's not a villain. Maybe he actually used to work with Benton Quest. And that's what, and also that's when I started building the idea of uh, bringing in Buzz. Because I was tired of, like, there were too many dead moms in the Hanna-Barbera yeah. stuff. You know, and I was like, well, what if instead of Dr. Conroy or whatever, we, we use Buzz's mom instead? And then I got kind of came up with that whole idea of the Zarathustra project that you never find out what it's about. But, you know, if they ever ask me to do, a, like, a graphic novel or something, I'll go back and tell that story. Because I, I love the idea of them all working together originally, you know, before they get split up and go their separate ways. And Zen's considered a kind of terrorist by the world. When that backstory starts kind of unfolding, you mentioned early on that there was, like, a third brilliant scientist. Then you find out that it's Buzz's mom. And then you you see those scenes of them kind of working together and... and having Johnny's mom die and having Johnny have the you know connection with Buzz and all that stuff it it feels effortless okay. <laughs> how how much work did that take to take all of these sort of disparate but similar things and mash them all together because it was in some ways they sh they shouldn't really fit but they also kind of do yeah that wasn't hard it it's weird like uh Shaner and I talked about this a lot like Anything that had uh, Wildy or Toth designs behind it just naturally clicked in our heads. It all seemed, seemed like it could be part of the same world. What was a little harder was when you got into stuff like the Impossibles, who were straight up from more like the Jetsons era, and they were just little funny cartoon shorts, like doing a Beatles riff, but with powers. And then it's kind of funny how they kept bringing the, the setup of the Impossibles back. So like the Harlem Globetrotters have them, the Three Stooges have their powers. You know, they keep doing the multi-man coily thing over and over again. Like, of course, you naturally would have to have someone who is a multi-man and a coil person and a water person. But, you know, we, we just spent a little extra time just trying to figure them out and syncing them up. But we always meant to treat them as, like, they're still going to be the more fun characters who are a little bit silly. But the kids will like them a lot because it's like, oh, this is like the kind of stuff we watch on TV. And th and that was their whole thing. They had a TV show, and they're kind of like the Wiggles or something, right. um, who end up getting powers. And they kind of it, it's like I I felt like it actually worked. Yeah, it, it was a little bit of gymnastics because there's so many characters you can't bring them all in. Well, I noticed that like Xandor. Yeah, Xandor is like <laughs> <laughs> just disappears. Yeah, you and the kid and Dorno. Stay, yeah. yeah, you and Dorno can stay back on uh, the Herculoid planet. Because like we've already got enough dudes around here, and they, we can't, everybody can't be the hero. And again, I needed more women, and she was a perfect like strong uh, female lead to bring in. You know, I love the idea that she just simply gets sucked in with the Herculoids and makes them stay back. 
and that works just fine because you don't need Xandor running around with Space Ghost and, and race and everything. It's like, no, no, we're, we're, we're going to have to absolutely sit down and pick some favorites, and I'm picking race <laughs> and, and, and whoever else gets in here. And we already had enough characters in there, and then Evan wouldn't stop drawing Dino Boy. And he just like kept sending in like when he would send in the designs while they were mulling over the pitch and I'm tweaking the pitch or whatever. He sent in all these pictures of Todd Dino Boy with his little dinosaur and Ugg. And then at that point, at some point, I just started writing him in. I forgot he wasn't part of the pitch. I just thought, well, actually, this will work really well. We'll have the, the Lost Valley of Dino Boy. That'll be that can be explained by the Omnicron touching down on Earth and kind of kicking, uh, bringing a lot of stuff with him. And, and connects to my tour's time. And then uh, we got into it, and then Marie uh, Javens, uh, the editor, reminded me, it's like, you know, we never actually had Dino Boy in the pitch, and he never was approved. So all she had to do was write to Dan <laughs> and said, uh, Evan really wants to draw dinosaurs. Can we have this in there? And that was settled really fast. So, But uh, to me, that was kind of the key of it. The whole uh, Lost Valley really is an important part of the story. That's one of those things about the the scope of the project that like it's there and you you read about it, you see it, but then you kind of move away from it and you never really go back to it. Yeah. Um we revisit Dino Boy in the Future Future Quest Presents series, I believe. Yeah, yeah Steve yeah. threw it. Yeah. Um Yeah, you wrote that one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, like just the first time I read it, like when it first came out, and I was picking it up monthly, it was in a way one of the most daunting things I'd sort of ever read from you. <laughs> I wasn't a huge fan of a lot of the DC Hanna or the Hanna Barbera action characters. You know, Birdman was always kind of like a low rent superhero to me. <laughs> yeah, I like Space Ghost. I didn't really know much or anything about the Herculoids, so all of these characters. It was a little overwhelming, and I've since kind of done a little bit more exploration, and the last couple times that I've read it, it's flowed way better, and, and I just have kind of a better feeling for the characters, and I, I like how things sort of blend, but I'm also noticing a little bit more the stuff that you're sort of putting in there, but you just don't have the space, yeah, <laughs> or or maybe even the energy to like continue with it. It's just, well, yeah, you can just, you can keep going. I, I'd happily write more if they... But, you know, they, they probably only thought, well, we'll get like three years out of this or something. I don't really know how they figure that stuff out. And I'm sure sales has something to do with it. But, uh, yeah, like Birdman, I, I also was never like big into Birdman. You know, it's like, oh, he's another one of the characters who shouts his own name like Space Ghost. But then because I didn't really care that much about him, I was, I felt freed up to reimagine him just a little bit more with the basics of his, uh, backstory that they said in the cartoon. And, uh, Doc and I ended up really liking Birdman. I don't know. He just had his own kind of little feel that was a little different from everybody else. I like what you did with him. Yeah. He has kind of like a little mystical thing going on with the raw. Yeah. He's kind of more laid back and way more Californian than the other characters. It's yeah. Kind of, it, it, it sort of worked out nicely that way. It, again, a lot of times you do some of your best stuff when you, you're not worried about the character and how you're portraying them so much. Uh, and he falls in so nicely as the the mentor for uh, for Ty when he becomes my tour. Yeah, that was another thing I don't think I originally planned, but then once they're kind of drawn into a scene together, you go, oh, naturally Ty would ask Birdman some tips, and then Birdman just sort of really helps him out and you know kind of tells him how to work his powers and stuff. So uh, yeah, that that turned out really nicely. <clears throat> Again, there was another one where you know it's like. We have to figure out something to do with his big bird. You know, we can't have this uh, big war eagle thing in there. All the <laughs> Avenger. Time. Yeah, you're always trying to figure out where do I put the dog and where do I put the bird. So we did get a couple of little scenes where you just see all the animals together. Yeah. And trying to make, trying to figure out what they're supposed to be doing, which is kind of fun. But we we dodged around them quite a bit. Kind of felt like you you sort of respected their existence by throwing them in every now and then, but you you kept them to the sideline as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because. If you're trying well, and to so often, like, the animals would get in the way of, like, Omnicron or something, and everybody would be trying to save the animal from being absorbed. Exactly. Because that's the way I think it would go. Every, yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, the place is on fire, you're worried about your dog. My favorite scene, though, is ultimately, because it's one of my favorite scenes, was just when they go into the Phantom Cruiser, and I do that part Darwin was talking about, and then Blip jumps on Johnny's head and acts like a real monkey, you know, and yeah. Johnny's freaking out because there's a monkey on his head. 
And uh, it's one of the funniest things Evan's ever drawn, in my opinion. And I was just so happy. It's more of that sort of just letting things, setting it up, but then letting things unroll the way they naturally would. And you just get something better than if you try to force a plot. And also with these kind of big crossover events, a thing I don't usually like about them when other people do them is uh, (laughs) I feel like everybody has their pet heroes. And then some of the other heroes tend to get relegated like they're scrubs or something, you know. You see that happen a lot in the Marvel and DC stuff. And it's like, no, every every one of these heroes is the main hero in their own little book or show or whatever. So really it doesn't make sense that, no, no, we're going to all defer to you. Even though they kind of do that with Space Ghost, but it's just kind of understood. Space Ghost, you know, he's been fighting this thing forever, and he's the one that knows about it. So everybody does defer to him when he finally is recovered enough to get back in the game. Well, he's absent for quite a bit of the book as well. Yeah, he's he's because you don't realize he's he's stuck in this time vortex, fighting, trying to keep the Omnicron from coming to the the planet. And uh, so when he shows up, he's worn out. But when they first see him, you know, he's literally like a ghost. And he's yelling at the enemy, but everybody thinks it's towards them. So we kind of do a little Marvel uh, where it looks like they're going to fight, but it didn't happen. I'm so glad you brought up the word vortex, because something I noticed when I was reading the book when it first came out was in the first issue, one of the characters mentions vortexes. Yeah. And I was like, ah, Jeff, it's vortices. And then a couple issues later, you say vortices. And then I think it's in, like, issue 10 or 11... I think Haji says, is it Vortex or Vortices? <laughs> was that something that was missed initially and corrected later? or so I, I I always knew it was Vortices, but this was one of those things. It's like, for it to feel in that kind of 60s vibe that we were doing, it didn't sound right. It's like, this. It, I think if you go back, I'm pretty sure you can see, like, in the, in the first two issues, I have it used both ways, depending on who's saying it. Like, if Dr. Quest says it, it's Vortices. If it's just some random fear agent or something like that, they say vortex. So it, which is what Johnny says. If you're a scientist, it's vortex. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I actually did do that early on and did it on purpose. That's one of the weird things. Like you run into that a lot when you're writing stories. Like I don't think this character would actually say this right. And if I make him say it right, then it's kind of weird, you know. But then again, if I make him say it wrong, everybody thinks I don't know it. So, but it's, that's kind of the thing. You just have to take it on the chin. <laughs> and just assume people will think that because it's like, darn it, I, I can't, I can't, I, I've got to have them say it the way they would probably say it and, and stick to my characterization or I'll lose it. Is that something that came up in the edit that you had to justify or? Yeah, I think that... I did. I, I think I did tell the editor what I was doing there. I said, no, he's saying it this way. There was another word that I did like that and I'm trying to think of what it was, uh, that I think was in that or I, I might be jumping back to the, Shazam uh, two-parter that Evan and I did. But there was another thing like that where I was sure characters would not say this or they would say this. Dr. Zen would say it right, blah, blah, blah. It's a weird little tick of mine. <laughs> but it works. And, and the, the payoff, like, it's not uh, it's not so obvious that it's irritating. It's just something that sort of works in the back of your head. And then when it comes up again, you sort of go, oh, and then it comes up again later. It's well done. Well done, Mr. Parker. <laughs> <laughs> one of my one of my favorite bits that that I had in my head uh, from the very beginning, and we don't get to it till like the next to last issue, the penultimate issue, was that all the characters were going to be together and they would all synchronize watches like they would always. Yes, do. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, and it was the whole idea that if you bothered to look over at Haji, he's just doing like this with his head, like because he he does everything internally, and I. And I was like, Shaner, we got to get this in. It's like I've I've wanted this scene in the entire time, and it doesn't fit anywhere except right here. But he's got that one panel. It's like I wish I had that panel as a print. It's my favorite panel. It's a nice shot of all the characters, and it's yeah, it's a, it's a clever little thing to do. I think I remember somebody pointing that out on Twitter when it came out, and you're like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, those people mean the world to me when someone notices something that someone else did. <laughs> that way, you know you're not alone. Yeah, so you're um, you're very good about that. You pick up on little stuff like that, and it's like, oh well, I guess that was just for me. But then when someone else gets it, like, good. So back in the early planning stages, I mean, you you said that you were riffing with Darwin. How much, like, how far did Darwin's work kind of go in the project before you kind of took it over? He was uh, completely. 
uh, it was all in the pitch stage. Like he was, uh, he was out by the time I was writing the first script. And he said, no, I got to move on to some other stuff. And he was kind of short in the emails. And of course, now we all know what was going on. Um, yeah. You know, he had gotten a cancer diagnosis. And the weird thing was, I don't know how many people picked up on this. And I went back and looked and it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't actually describe this in the pitch because I thought it would sound bad. But the whole thing with uh, Omnicron is he's a he's a cancer. Wow. The creature itself is cancer, but just sort of this kind of galactic version of it. But self-replicating and all consuming. Yeah. uh, And like later, if you remember, Jan and Jace uh, showed the little Space Force message to everybody else that would spread around. And we refer to him going metastatic. And uh, all that stuff was in there. That's just one of those sort of eerie things that I briefly thought about once I realized what was going on with Darwin. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's like I'm not going to change it. Because it was toward the end, and I still had my references. I could have changed it, and I'm like, no, I'm going to let that ride. Cancer is awful, and it's one of those things where it was actually supposed to be scary. And you do see, like, when you see the creature coming through uh, foreign cities, there's all these little humans inside of it. And you know that they're getting absorbed, and they're not coming back out. You know? Yeah. In fact, the only thing they saved <laughs> was was one of the little blobs from the Herculoids which arguably the blob could have split himself and made himself two anyway, because <laughs> I almost was going to do that. But then I realized as a story porn, it, it worked well for them to like make a connection to the creature by having one of them absorbed into it. And it, it, since it was the weird gleep and gloop, you know, I was like, okay, this is too good. I've got to use this. Then the fact that there's two of these blobs, it actually kind of mean looks like it was set up for a purpose. Well, that's something I noticed on this last reread because I think it was Race talking to Deva. Yeah. And it was just a panel where they were, everyone was kind of making the plans and they're out in the in the desert or by the Grand Canyon. Race just kind of makes this comment about whatever the toll in human life has been mm-hmm. having Omicron on Earth and it just sort of hit me. I was like, oh yeah, this is like, people are being absorbed. This yeah. is, I think they were talking about how it was... Um, as it absorbs the people, it's like learning how to be people mm-hmm. and learning human words and stuff like that. And yeah, it was it didn't like turn it into this dark thing, but it just added this element of gravitas. Like it was, this is not just. I mean, this is a story with the Impossibles and yeah. Dino Boy, and, and yet there's this kind of toll to it. Which yeah, it was. You have to yeah, you have to get that real thread in there in some way. Otherwise, it just feels kind of like it feels plotted and random. And like, oh, whatever, it's, it's a big bomb and we got to stop the bomb, which is always a bad setup because, well, then you don't get the explosion. You know, but this, this way you actually keep getting to see the horror and you get you get a real sense of how hard it is to stop. They, every time it looks like they're doing pretty well against it, it doesn't matter because it just keeps coming back. Yeah, and this was like basically the third time anybody tried to stop it kind of en masse, right? Yeah. Because there was the Space Force, and then there was the second attempt with all the aliens, and then there was the and Space then, Force of Earth. <laughs> yeah, and so they get the sense of pride. Earth is where we stopped it. And then I, and I was happy to get right, right before the final fight to be able to craft that scene where Haji, of all people, is really upset because he realizes, like, usually Dad and Dr. and Race are always telling us to go be somewhere safe, but they're not doing yes. it anymore. Because there's nowhere safe. And then you get a nice little bit where, you know, Johnny's just trying to console his brother. And then Space Ghost walks up and kind of gives him a little talk, which is not something you've ever seen Space Ghost do. But, man, uh, Doc Shaner just completely sold it. That whole sequence really works to me because of what he did. Those last two issues that he did, I don't know what changed from, like, the early issues to those last issues. But, I mean, the first issues were amazing, and those last issues were beyond amazing some of the stuff that he was doing with uh, like when uh, Zinn and uh, Benton were with the helmets going in and, and Zinn was reliving the Zarathustra project yeah. thing and um, just beautiful beautiful work by him. That actually segues nicely into two things one I wanted to comment that you mentioned Johnny and Haji talking. You nailed the voices for these characters, at least the quest characters. Oh good. Like I, I hear the voices, I hear Hoyt Curtin's music <laughs> and watching Johnny and Haji relating to each other, like it was super touching. It was really nice seeing these two kids being kids. 
yeah in this adult world and just being very real and very present in it well i'm i'm glad you like that though it's like it was really important to me to have them interact really like brothers so I, in my mind it's like well they've lived together now for a few years or whatever and originally like they were asking me for uh things to it was part for promo stuff and part for the pitch and they were going to uh the little name they had assigned to Haji at some point in the past and they were saying Haji Singh and I know they're calling him Singh because he wears a turban all the time and all that because you would naturally that would be your surname but I was like no his name is Haji Quest he's adopted you know it's like and I'm just gonna and he's not gonna say Dr. Quest he's gonna say dad just like Johnny does and to me that kind of made the dynamic work a whole lot better you realize it's like no Haji's not the exotic pal who gets to tag along he's really part of the family I spoke about scope earlier when we were talking about uh, Dino Boy and the Lost Valley, but the story is so big. I loved how in those last issues you brought it all down pretty much to like Johnny and Haji. Yeah. And they had that moment sort of together where he's like, you're the most focused person I know and I'm hard-headed and they put the helmets on and they go in and they're the ones that save the day. And Yeah. By that point, I'd, I'd give up sounds harsh, but like I kind of gave up on them as being any kind of focal point because there's just so many characters to service. Yeah. I figured it was going to be some big grand thing, but to, to go from this big thing to this very, very small intimate thing and, and to these characters who you know I love and I know you love, that was a real highlight for me and it really, it was a nice punctuation to the to the whole story. Oh, yeah. Thank you. To me, the story, some, something that epic just works better if you can bring it down to the core by the end of it. And there has to be some human scale, yeah. Yeah. And... I had always planned, it's like, well, ultimately what's going to make the difference is still going to be these two kids who started the story. You know, they can't get in on all the stuff. They're not a giant robot full of weapons, you know, and they don't have power bands or whatever, you know. But so I'm not, I'm, you know, I deliberately thought, well, sometimes they're just going to be kind of your viewpoint characters. And that's the way they were actually in the original cartoon. Sometimes they just hung back and watched Race do his thing. Yeah. You know, they weren't always saving the day. But I was determined that at the end they're going to be what matters to the whole thing, and and I you know and it just worked out nicely. You get to the whole point. The adults just simply can't control it because they've got too much baggage for the creature to work with against them. But the kids, they're pure, you know, to for the lack of a better word, they're they're pure ideals and everything, and they have their issues too. But you know they help each other get past it as they do like Johnny you get a brief flash of Haji losing his family and the same thing with Johnny or whatever but they just get it back together and bam they make it so Mitor can can pull the thing down into it like he was going to and but Bandit did not come back in he did not help at all at the end he just runs up and barks once they're hanging out back in Florida <laughs> I like that scene where I think it was uh Blip was pulling his tail, and Jan told him not to do that, and then Johnny was like, no, don't worry, he deserves it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny has no... He's not precious about the dog at all. That was great, because I felt like that was the writer's voice coming through, and I also felt like that's exactly what a boy his age would probably say. <laughs> yeah, when you can do it that way, that's the best, when you can appease yourself and the character. I often find, though, I'll write a character very different from the way I am. It really flies in the face of that whole thing where people say... It's like, oh, they're just writing themselves. Like, no, 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 I'm really not thinking about me. So that brings to a close the first part of my conversation with DC Hanna-Barbera writer Jeff Parker. I hope you guys are enjoying the conversation so far, and I hope you'll be back for part two as soon as I can get that up. Uh, One of the things that I'm also going to be putting up when part two goes up is anyone who's familiar with my DC Hanna-Barbera interviews should know that I also do like the bonus content, the APNSD extras on the WordPress blog, scoobydoocast.wordpress.com. And uh, Jeff has provided me with some page layouts that, that he's done and some reference stuff. So when I put up part two, I'm also going to put up that extra content. So watch for that as well. If you're interested in checking out Jeff's stuff, you can check him out online at jeffparkerwrites.com and his Twitter account is at Jeff Parker. And if you're in the DC or New Orleans areas this year, uh, you could get a chance to see Jeff because he will be at AwesomeCon 
in DC and at the Big Easy Con in New Orleans this year. If you want to let me know what you thought of the conversation and or DC Hanna-Barbera comic books or comics or Scooby-Doo or whatever, you can contact me on the podcast name Scooby-Doo Facebook page. You can contact me on Twitter at ScoobyDooCast. I've got a Gmail account, ScoobyPodcast at gmail.com. Don't ask me why they're different. They are. I'm sure it made sense at the time. You can also check out my posts on Instagram. A podcast named Scooby-Doo is my handle there. And the aforementioned WordPress blog, scoobydoocast.wordpress.com. I'm actually trying to, especially with the ending of Scooby Apocalypse, um, I think that's coming March or April. I, I kind of wanted to put a kick in the pants for my Scooby Apocalypse reviews. Kind of doing an analysis of each issue, and those are going up on the blog. And um, I've got some other ideas for stuff on the blog, which will probably be rolling out as year 50. Hashtag SD50 goes on. We are in it, folks. This is uh, this is Scooby's 50th anniversary, uh, heading up to September 13th. Got some plans. Got some plans. I'm roping in some people. Got some crazy ideas. So stay tuned to the Twitter. Stay tuned to the Facebook. I'll be making the announcements as they come. And with that, just want to thank you guys for joining me on this episode. Uh, thank you, as always, for your patience, uh, waiting for these episodes to come out. It's been a pleasure, as always, bringing these interviews to you guys. I hope you'll stick around for the next one. So take care, stay cool, and remember... We will meet again soon, Dr. Quest. Very soon, I promise you. leave this place. It's Bernard. He followed us. Silence the animal.